0: we understand how all this uh, fits together. Uh, The first 18 chapters of Exodus that we looked at last week uh, when God delivered his people through the leadership of Moses out of Egypt and into the wilderness, that takes those first 18 uh, chapters of Exodus. And then after uh, several weeks, a month or so, a few months, three months, excuse me, there or thereabouts, they come to Mount Sinai Now they're going to spend a whole year at Mount Sinai, and that year is what occupies the remainder of the book of Exodus. So they're not really moving around, they're staying in one place, and uh, that year is a whole lesson, a life lesson in how God wants them to live once they get into the land that he has promised. Not just how they are to live once they get into the land, but how they are to start to live now as his people. And that's what takes up Exodus 19 to 40. So it's a whole year class with God as the teacher about how they should now live as the people of God. Now the book of Leviticus is kind of the seminar notes of this year-long class. So if you were taking notes, God was a teacher, you would have ended up with something not too dissimilar to the book of Exodus, It's uh, the book of Leviticus, sorry. And it's written uh, like a manual, it reads like that, the, the language is rhythmic, often because they would have to memorize it so the priests could remember the things for which they were responsible for. And then the book of Deuteronomy, that when you get to it, you'll notice it picks up many of the same themes, because the book of Deuteronomy essentially is Moses' farewell address at the end of his life, and so he's picking up the major themes of deliverance out of Exodus and the ways that they should live as the new people of God. So that's how it all kind of fits together. So we're going to look uh, essentially at some of the things that we find in Exodus 19 to 40. We're going to relate that into Leviticus and then in your own time you can, uh, just after lunch, because you'll be itching to do it, you can get out the book of Deuteronomy and see how that fits together as well. Okay, so here we go. Uh, What what are the main themes? What were the sections of this year-long school or class? Uh, There's a a real echo on on this, Keith. I don't know if you can do anything about it. It's just slightly making me hear the second time the sound of my own voice. And believe me, the first time is bad enough. Uh, So, that's slightly better, thanks. Um, Don't worry too much. Uh, So, this year-long class And, and like you would expect, you know, you get a manual at the beginning of a day conference, you know, and you whip it open and you look at the sections, you know, what's, what's this, what's my day going to be like? Well, if they had the manual at the beginning of the year, they would open it up and there would be four sections in it. Section number one, teaching number one, the first great theme is all about the presence, the presence of God it was the presence of god with them that would set them apart as god's people that would set them apart as god's nation unlike any other nation god himself would dwell with them and remember when we looked at abraham several weeks ago now god makes this covenant this binding agreement that cannot be broken that he would be what? That he would be with them. That they would now be one with him. Remember God walking through the pieces, the sacrificial pieces of the covenant. God saying, We are one now we are together. So as slaves in Egypt, the God who has made himself one with his people, who's made a covenant with his people, the primary uh, blessings of a covenant was protection and provision. The God who'd made an agreement with his people, proved himself faithful, went down to Egypt, grabbed the people and led them out into the wilderness, promising them that he would provide and protect by giving them the promised land. And so every morning, and every evening, they lived in the wilderness with this visible sign that God was with them, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. They belonged to God. But through this year of teaching at Mount Sinai, God was going to sharpen their focus in an incredible way about what it meant to live with his presence dwelling with them. Look what happens with me. First of all, Uh, a few verses into chapter 19, we're introduced to God who is where? God's up on the mountain and God calls Moses up onto the mountain uh, in order to meet with him. The Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you, this is at the top of the mountain, and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And if you've got it open in front of you, Exodus twenty-four. Uh, uh, whip your Bibles open again, uh, just so it's there. We get a couple of a times when Moses goes up the mountain to meet with God. So the the, the kind of camp is down here somewhere, and the mountain's over here somewhere. Let's imagine it's here for a moment, and Moses goes up the mountain to meet with God. The people down here watch from a distance, seeing Moses go up into the cloud, the glory of God's filling the mountain. The people are told not to go too close to the mountain. You can't get too close to the presence of God because he is holy and awesome. And so they watch God's presence from a distance. So Exodus 24 verse 15, when Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days, the cloud covered the mountain and on the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses Uh, uh, from within the cloud. It's interesting, isn't it? Moses sat there for six days before God said anything. Ever felt like that? To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went up on the mountain, and he stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Notice the significance. God reveals himself in a fire. Now, fires do two things. If uh, I visited you and the fire was roaring in the fireplace, and the room was warm, that fire would speak to me of God's welcome, of God's care, or, or your welcome and your care. So God, God has pictured it as a fire. Sometimes a fire is a warming embrace. A fire is something that draws you. You sit around the fire. You don't light a campfire and walk away. You gather around it. That's what fire does. It draws people. So there's this fire on top of the mountain that in theory draws people, but fire also does something else. Fire, when it's out of control or it's alive or it's, it's strong, actually causes us to step back. Fire is dangerous. It's to be handled with care. It can consume us. And so you have this this, these two senses with God going on at the same time. And Hebrews, towards the end of Hebrews, talks about God being a consuming fire. Uh, And it's at the end of uh, chapter 12, I think. And it's picking up these themes about God, that he is awesome. He makes you want to stand back. But at the same time, his fire draws you close. So there's this tension going on. There's God who is a consuming fire. He wants the people to draw close and they're sending Moses up the mountain to meet with God. God's calling him to come close but yet at the same time God's saying to the rest of the people whatever you do don't go close because I'm a consuming fire. It's the love and the holiness of God. And so God comes down, meets Moses on the mountain. Love wants to draw close Holiness makes you can't go anywhere near this God because he is a consuming fire. But notice the progression. Notice what happens a little later. Exodus 33 and verse 7. No longer is God up the mountain, but God has come a lot closer, but he's still some distance away. Instead of going up the mountain now, Moses and the people—notice what's changed—Moses and the people could go and meet God in the tent of meeting. What a fantastic name! Replaced to meet God, the tent of meeting. So, there's the tent of meeting, and what does it say? That is some distance from the camp. It's not up the mountain. The camp's over here. The tent of meeting might be here. If we had a big budget, we could have built a mountain and a tent and a little camp, couldn't we? But we haven't, so we didn't. So God's up the mountain, now God's in the tent, people are over there, God's in the tent, but you can leave the camp and go and meet God in the tent and then go back to your ordinary life. Interesting, if you've got Exodus 33 open in front of you, That's a my interesting, so it might be totally boring to you. Appreciate that. Exodus 33 verse 15 is all about the presence of God. And, And Moses is beginning to realize what God has known all along. That without God's presence, they would not even be a nation at all. Then Moses said to God, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. We can't move from here unless you come with us. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people, unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? He, he's got a point. Moses is saying, your presence is the, ultimately the only thing that defines us as a nation. If we haven't got your presence, we're, we're, we're a non-people. We have no purpose, we have no place, we're nomads in this desert Then notice, whilst all this is going on, quite a lot of chapters in Exodus are devoted to the building of the tabernacle. Exodus 25 verse 8. What on earth is the tabernacle? Essentially, the tabernacle was a posh tent. So you might have houses and mansions and castles They had tents and posh tents. This was a posh tent. Build me a posh tent. A tent that is just a little bit bigger and a little bit better than the rest of yours. That's all it was. That's all they could do. Have them make a sanctuary for me. Why? And I will dwell where? Sorry? Um, Where was God a few chapters ago? then where was he? Tent of meeting. Now where is he? In the tabernacle that was to be right in the middle of their camp. Build me a special tent. Twelve tribes would be uh, situated around the tabernacle, around the special tent, and this tent that was just a bit better than the others was for what? A place where I will dwell. Remember the fear a few chapters ago, awesome God, he's still that same God. The tension of his love and his holiness, he wants to draw close but he's too holy, he's moving closer and we'll understand why he was able to do that in a moment's time. But just notice the progression where God's presence ends up. And then uh, we read after chapter 25, quite a, a, a lot more detail about this tent and what was to go in it and so on. And then just in case they hadn't got the idea, uh, we read in Exodus chapter 29, then I will dwell among the Israelites. This is verse 45 of Exodus 29. Then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them, I am the Lord their God. So God was in heaven. He came down to rescue them out of Egypt. First of all, showing his presence simply by pillars of clouds and pillars of fire and so on. Then God comes down and meets Moses on the mountain. Then God comes to the tent of meeting and invites Moses to bring others with him to the tent of meeting. Then God says, Build me a special tent and I will come and live right in the middle of your camp. Every morning when you unzipped your tent, they didn't have zips. When you undid the skins that you tied together to keep you warm, you would see in the middle of your camp the tent in which God dwelt, and the smoke would rise from it, as a sign of his presence. Yes? Moses was in the bulrushes some hundreds of years ago now, 500 years ago, he was in the the bulrushes, and now 500 years on, the people who are in the wilderness also needing God's protection, just like Moses needed, and the same God who promises to protect and provide still protects and still provides and have set up residence in the middle of their camp. Now, look, flick right to the end of the book of Exodus. Because the book's going to end with the main point, isn't it? Hello? If You've got a story, you've got a message, you're going to end the book with the dominant message, the dominant theme. Exodus 40, verse 34 Uh, I think it is. Yes, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. Now the tent of meeting, let me explain, was within the tabernacle. So it had moved. So, uh, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God moved in. It's removal day. God moves in. At the end of this book, Moses could not even enter because the cloud had settled upon it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Here was a nation that would be defined by the presence of God. Several thousand years later, letters from God went to seven churches in Asia Minor in the book of Revelation, the first few chapters of Revelation. And God writes them and says, you're doing this well and you're not doing that very well. Unless you sort it out, I will do what? What does it say? Uh, absolutely that's exactly right i'll take your lampstand i'll take the sign the reality of my presence from you unless you sort it out i will take from you the very thing that (coughs) defines you and sadly some of those churches if not all of them came to an end i'll take your lampstand away why because the presence of god is what defines us is what makes us a nation A people, a church. We're not a church because we meet on Sundays. And we're not a church because we've signed something with the Baptist Union or any other alliance or agreement. We're not a church because we sing songs or because we pray. We're a church only if his presence dwells in our midst. You are a Christian only if his presence dwells dwells. Hmm, That's interesting, isn't it? Where does God's presence dwell now? Have you got time for a little aside? In fact, all you can do is walk out, isn't it? So walk out. If you haven't got time, just go. So uh, just a little aside, because the mountain, the tent of meeting to the camp, who would have thought that years later the Bible would say, one of the disciples writing, Jesus became flesh and good old King James Version people. And, way, oh, you smart cookies here. And tabernacled. You see how loaded that word was to Jewish people? It wasn't like John was going, oh, what can I think of, camping? No, that doesn't sound right. Tent, well, a tabernacle, that's the word. No, it was the obvious, this whole progression, mountain, tent of meeting, uh, into the camp. Then Jesus himself was going to tabernacle uh, among us. The word became flesh and lived, literally moved into our neighborhood. That wasn't the end, was it? What did Jesus promise? He would send the Holy Spirit. And where does the Holy Spirit bring Jesus to live? In us. Mountain, tent of meeting, into the camp, Jesus himself. Now in this room, there are what? A couple of hundred tabernacles in which God himself chooses to dwell. And just to complete the full circle, we started in Eden with him, and we will go back to live with him, and he with us. You know, hallelujah, yeah, hallelujah. You know that, um, what's it, the Lion King and Elton John's song, the circle of life? Rubbish. That's the circle of life. From him, he races after us, And brings us back to him. Hallelujah. It's a shame it's a good song. It's just not true. Can't have it all. Bless him. Right. Thinking about Alton John has totally thrown me. I've got no idea where we are now. Question. Question. If you go back to the Exodus. And think about the journey. Think about the image Think about this year-long lesson. is so what God's teaching them from the mountain to the... To the okay? That, that's the journey he's taking them on through this to help them understand that what really matters is his presence. And it's all grace. They've done nothing to deserve that yet, have they? Were they really good for 300 years? And then after they were really good for 300 years, God said, okay, I'll move into the tent outside your camp. And then when they were good for another three hundred years, God said, Okay, I'll move a little No no no. And they've done nothing to deserve any of this. They've grumbled. Brings hope to all of us. Don't you think? They grumbled. And the grace, all grace. But the question is this for you today, where is God's presence in your life right now? You see, for some of us, it's like this. We're sitting, and we're looking, and maybe you're looking up at the mountain, and you can see God up at the mountain. Uh, and maybe this weekend, people have gone into the prayer room, and Claire talks about the prayer room, and they think, well, I can see people going up the mountain and meeting with God, but actually, I'm down here. This is where I am. I, 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 I haven't done that. I'm not doing that. Maybe I did it once, but I'm not doing it now. God's up the mountain. I can maybe see his glory, but I don't know it. I don't know him. And then others of you perhaps relate more to uh, the tent of meeting. You see, you have your life, you, you do all your stuff down here. You know, what kind of things do you do? Do you do washing up? Well, three of you. Anyone do the ironing? Well, more of you do the ironing than the washing up. That's interesting. Because it's all about how you look when you go outside, isn't it? I made an ironing machine. Made an ironing machine. <laughs> you do your normal stuff, and then... Oh, I need to meet with God, so I'm going to go off to the tent of meeting. Have you ever done that? And you meet with God, you have a really great time with God, and then it comes to when I go back to the washing, to the ironing, working for BT. See, it's a downward spiral. The ironing's better than working for BT. See, down and down. I go back to my stuff. See, you went to spring harvest. You went out to your tent. You went to Keswick. You went out to your... T- you went to Soul Survivor. You went out. Oh, it was brilliant. And then I, I, came, I came back. Maybe you do that every week. It's Sunday morning, right? Off to my tent to meet with God. Tuesday nights, Wednesday morning, small group. Off to my tent to meet with God. And God says, no. No, no, no. I want to live here. Here. Did you get... I want to live... Here. where is God's presence in your life today so we're thinking about the journey we're thinking how there's this tension between God's love God's and God's holiness we know it's all grace and we're challenged about where God wants to live in relation to our lives. So I'm asking you, is it God's presence that you feel when you rise in the morning? Is it God's presence you know as you love and as you serve and as you live as you do the ironing, as you make a meal, as you go to work, as you take a walk, as you drink with friends, as you make a decision, as you sit in a quiet place, as you rush to a deadline, as you push on until you get a breakthrough in something. Is it God at the center of it all? Because that's where he wants to live. First great theme then is presence. And you might be thinking, how? How does the God that's holy, who at the beginning cannot even come close, end up living in the midst of the camp and pull that forward a little bit? How is the God who's so holy that he can only be at the top of the mountain and you cannot even touch the bottom of the mountain if his presence is there because he is that holy? How can that God end up in my heart? Well, because I'm so perfect, of course. Thank you, Irene, for laughing so uncontrollably at that thought. How? Do you, know, do you know what my heart's like? No, you haven't got any idea. I'm not too sure what yours is like either. And that's how we like to keep it, don't we? But God knows. How does that God end up in here? Well, the next great theme, the presence, next great theme was the priests. The priests this tension was going to be resolved that a holy God could come and live in the presence of his people. And we will never, ever relate rightly to God unless we understand that our sin is a detestable affront to his majesty, his holiness, and his beauty. Your life, is a total, utter dishonour to him, and so is mine. My life and yours shows utter contempt for a holy God. Yet, in his grace, God himself would make a way to deal with their sin. Let's open Leviticus, because I know you're looking forward to that. The first five chapters of Leviticus, have it open in front of you just to be sure that I'm not making this up. The first five chapters of Leviticus are five offerings or five sacrifices. Each chapter covers one offering or one sacrifice that the priests would look after. Now the word offering has a, a richness in its original language, it's about sacrifice, but it's also about coming near to offer, to worship. So it, 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 in the original language, it's like, here are five ways to come near to worship. These are five ways that make it possible for a unholy people to connect with a very holy God. Apart from the grain offering, which is in chapter 2, also called the the peace offering. uh, 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 No, chapter 3 is the peace offering. Apart from the grain offering, sorry, in chapter 2, all the others require the death of another. Sin leads to death. We know that. That was Genesis chapter 3. We did that in elementary class six weeks ago or so. Sin leads to death. Each of these sacrifices involves death of one kind. Even the grain offering involves much sacrifice. God, and remember God gave them these things. These weren't, the people didn't originate with these. These were given to them. Moses up the mountain, God gives it to them. He writes the book. This is what we're supposed to do. God gives them a way by which he would accept a substitute death the death of a perfect animal instead of the death of the offender that which we all deserved because sin results in death so god creates these substitutes so that the animal would die in the offender's place. So to draw near to worship was costly, very costly in every sense. If you've got your Bible open, Leviticus 1, chapter 3, here we go. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he is to offer a male without defect, he must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting, now all this was in the tabernacle by now, so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. So, here we go. You get yourself a bull. Now, how big is a bull? You know, you drive along the motorway and you look at cows, don't you, in the distance. Ooh, they're about that big. Can you imagine if I got a bull and stuck it on the platform here? On A bull, think about it. It would be a little bit bigger than me, and I'm quite big. Yeah, a bull. Okay, so firstly, get yourself a bull. They're huge, aren't they? Get yourself a bull from the field and come to worship. Now, the biggest worry we have is does my accessorized Bible match my clutch? And will I have to walk more than 100 yards to get into the building? These guys had to bring a bull. Sunday morning. What time does the alarm go off? I need a bull. So you come into worship all the way from the field to the entrance of the tabernacle. Uh, you're still in your Sunday best because you're good Christians, aren't you? And you've got this bull in tow. What are you covered in by the time you get to church? (laughs) No one knows? Have a think. Think really hard. So you get this bull and you you drag the bull, reluctant animal. Bulls don't respond very. You drag the bull to your place of work. You're dragging him into church. And the people on the desk want to hand you a service sheet, a monthly and a mission magazine. How are you feeling by the time you get to church? Stressed? Anything else? Pretty tired. Pretty tired. (laughs) How far can you move a bull? Verse 5. When you get there, pretty tired, really chuffed that you made it. He, that's the person that's brought it, that's you, is to slaughter the young bull. Is that lasagna we're having for lunch? Is to slaughter the young bull before the Lord, and then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and sprinkle it against the altar on all sides at the entrance of the tent of meeting. There's no room for half-hearted worship here, is there? You can't be a bystander, or I'll just come and sit at the back. What with your bull on your lap? What are you going to do with it? This is full on. You've dragged the bull from the field. You've backed up your tractor—oh, they didn't have tractors in those days—into that. You've dragged him into church, uh, and you totally. And then the business starts. You are to slaughter the animal. This is really costly. You have to give everything to this process, physically at least. Verse six. Squeamish? Close your ears. He is to skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, including the head and the fat on the burning wood that is on the altar. Hmm? So far, so good? Then, he's to wash the inner parts, so you have to get them out first, you can't wash them while they're in, and the legs with water. And the priest is to burn all of it on the altar. It's a burnt offering, an offering made by fire, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. How is the worshipper feeling right now? Utterly exhausted, I would suggest to you. How is the worshipper looking right now? Remember your Sunday best. The worshipper has blood and animal insides all over him. Or dead animals lie around the place of worship. The animal is dead, but he is alive. Alive. God gives them a constant reminder that sin is bloody and awful. That sin is messy. It leads to death and destruction. It's costly and ugly and grubby and dirty. And sin leaves stains all over you. Sometimes I wish we had that visual reminder as we come to worship. I wish sometimes we could see the devastating effect of our sin, the seriousness of its consequences, the death and destruction that it brings. Oh, maybe we do see a man bleeding and dying with blood flowing. See the the man whose face is tortured in agony, and cries from the depth of his heart about a God he's always known who has now abandoned him, feel the coldness of the darkness, the eerie silence, hear the jeers and the cursing. And you ask yourself, why? Why is that man dying that way? He's done nothing wrong, said the observant thief. It's the same question on the lips of those worshippers. Why has this good, young, healthy animal died? Because it should have been me. That's what sin does. And I have sinned. strange, isn't it, that our churches are filled with pretty little crosses and nice little altars. Isn't that weird? Is it just me that thinks that's weird? Is that weird? It's all pretty and nice. I don't want you to miss the genius of this, because uh, we need to remember that that it, it grew out of the um, it grew had a real life. These people were real people living at a, at a real time and place in history. And remember that we reminded ourselves a few weeks ago about the type of culture that they were living in. Remember that it was a culture where you would live every day, spend every year trying to appease the gods who controlled your life. So you would offer your God or the gods that control the weather or your fertility or whatever it was, you would offer them crops or grain as a way of expressing gratitude to the gods, of a way of of appeasing the gods so that they would respond favorably to you and therefore give you a better life. You remember all that? And can you remember the fatal law of escalation? So if you'd had a good year previously then you would feel obliged to offer that God something more as a way of saying thank you, because if you didn't offer more after you had a good year, you might imply to that God that you weren't that grateful, and therefore forfeit the possibility of having a better or an equally good year the following 12 months. Equally? if you had a bad year you knew you hadn't offered your god enough so you would offer him something else something more than last year in the hope that expressing your extra gratitude uh, in hoping that the extra effort you put in to try and appease him or her would result in that god's blessing so what could you offer that express greater devotion that was what you were always asking yourselves. if you offered crops then maybe I should offer more crops and maybe now not crops maybe I need to offer an animal or maybe more animals what if I offered my own herd well that doesn't seem to be enough so I'll, I'll offer myself uh, uh, metaphorically or symbolically I'll, I'll start cutting myself which is why self-harming is so part of rituals uh, uh, around the world in the ancient east and continues through today And then in the end, I've offered all I've got, so I'll offer my son, my child. And that's why child sacrifice was so common. Because you keep having to go up the escalating ladder. What a horrendously horrible way to live. Really unsettling all of the time. Always wondering, have I done enough? Could I do more? I should do more. So I will do more. I have done more. But is that enough? I don't know whether that was enough, so perhaps I'll do more again. Yes, I have done more, but is that enough? I'm not sure, so I'll do... And so it goes on. And with every revolution, with every turn of that cycle, there was greater agony and greater sacrifice. And the brilliance of God coming to Abraham was he said to Abraham, I want you to leave your father's household. Hallelujah. Leave that way of living behind. It doesn't exist anymore in my agenda, In my under my rule and reign. You do not need to live like that. So, with that in mind, Leviticus chapter 1. Open it again. Have it open in front of you. See the brilliance of what's there in verse 2. Leviticus 1 verse 2. Speak to the Israelites and say to them, when any of you brings an offering to the Lord, when remember the word offering, when any of you comes to draw near, when any of you wants to draw near, get peace with God, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. That's it. One animal, that's it. Just bring that. Just bring In a world where people were sacrificing their children, God said, just bring that. Just one. Just bring that. Can can you see the freedom? Can you imagine the tremendous relief when the God of heaven who could say, I'll have your crops and I'll have your animals and I will have your firstborn, thank you, because everything in the world belongs to me. God says, no. This is a different way. This is a new day. Just bring an animal, a bull or a goat. All you need is a bull, a goat, or a bird if you're really poor. What did Jesus' parents bring? A bird. Leviticus 1 verse 4. He is to lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it what? It will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. The people of their day had never ever heard of a God who would say, just do that and I promise you that's enough. That's all it needs. That's all it takes. It will be acceptable the days of uncertainty are over in a world where you never knew where you stood with the gods the god of heaven and earth said my people will be different you can know for sure where you stand with god Isn't that amazing thing you see people think of leviticus and they see Deuteronomy, and and they, they work backwards from where we are, and they go, what is God doing, dragging us back to some ridiculously primitive way of life? What they do not see is in some very simple instructions, God was catapulting the people of their day into a brand new experience, both of his love And his grace, and a brand new experience of how to live under his rule and reign that was totally different from what the people of the day had ever known before. So, do you know for sure? Do you know for sure? Do you know for sure? sure? That your sins are forgiven do you know for sure that your guilt's been taken away do, do you know for sure that forgiveness is you do, do you know for sure that that God washes you clean from the inside out do, do you know for sure that heaven is a certainty he will embrace you or or is it i I hope so rather than a certain do, do you know for sure. That's the life God wants for you to know for sure. And that's what Leviticus is all about. Funnily enough, Leviticus is more about Jesus than any other Old Testament book. Maybe we'll do a whole series one day. Every verse almost points to Jesus. So do you know for sure? Because that's the life God's called you to. Quite late now, isn't it? You anxious about the dinner? It'll wait for us. Won't it, Chris? This is, this is what I'm going to do, I think, okay? It's ten past twelve. Um... We're going to go for 15 minutes, all right? And then we're going to perhaps sing and pray and go, all right? If you can't stay for 15 minutes, please go. Don't feel obliged anyway. I just think we need to finish this little bit so we can move on in the story. Is that okay? You can't say anything different, so don't... Uh, sorry, it's a stupid question, isn't it? But you can go, honestly. I really don't mind. I really don't mind. But we'll get ourselves in a pickle, really, if we keep trying to catch up. So let's just let's just nail this. So we're two, there's two to go, and I'll do them quickly, okay? Really quick. No more than five minutes on each, right? And the first thing is about the commandments, and it says do not lie. Five minutes on each. Here we go. Okay, so the third one is the precepts. Into this context, this is so important, which is why I want to nail it this morning. Into this context, God gives the Ten Commandments and all the other rules and regulations about moral life and civil life and so on. This idea... That God says, do these things and you will be acceptable to me. Do these things and you will draw near to me. is absolute rubbish and never, ever taught in the Bible. In this context, with the God of grace says, I'm going to come from heaven to the mountain, to the meeting, to the camp, to your hearts. That God who says, I'm going to do all that and I'm going to provide a way. I'm not asking anything. I'll provide the bull. And in the end, I'll provide my son. I'm going to do it all myself for you because I love you. If you want to live in the blessing, in the fullness of my provision, then this is the way you ought to live. It's a very, very different understanding to the one that people say about a God who says, you've got these laws, and if you don't follow those laws, you're in trouble. Well, you can't follow them, so you're in trouble anyway. The argument's ridiculous. God gave them commands to protect and to provide, which was the covenant responsibility. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. That's chapter 20. The rest of chapter 20 is what we call the Ten Commandments. God says, look, I'm giving you these Ten Commandments, but only now that I've rescued you and redeemed you and made you my people, only now I've done all this for you, I've shown you how much I love you, I've shown you you can't possibly get to me by yourself, but now, if you want to stay in my blessing, in the fullness, these are the things that are part of my kingdom. Love your neighbour as yourself. Do not lie, do not steal, do not commit adultery, do not murder. Uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Don't bow down to those idols that are way back with terror that caused so much trouble. Do not bow down to the gods of Egypt that held you in slavery. Worship the Lord your God only. Protect what I've given you in these commandments. You see, these are rules for the rescued. That's me and you. And too often we've imposed them on people outside. And in a sense, okay, because they're, they're, they're natural morality, some of them. But actually, these are, these are rules for us. And until people fall in love with the God of heaven, they will not understand the place of this way of living. Although many people who are not in love with God understand decency or morality because God's image is still within them. You see... We can do this in our Christian lives. All of the things that have gone on about the presence and the, uh, 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 and, and the priest is all about establishing our identity. Because I know who I am as a child of God, therefore I obey. If I don't know who I am as a child of God, but try and obey to become a child of God, I am the most miserable Christian on the planet. And maybe you feel like you've met one of those from time to time. You see, obedience must follow our identity. If we put our obedience first, if we try and get to God through our obedience, it'll end in absolute disaster. And it's why the psalmist can say, actually these laws are just fantastic. Because they keep me in the presence of God. And I love them. They're not a burden. I'm not trying to do them because I have to earn brownie points with the God of heaven. But I do them because I love him. I do them because of the life that he's given me. I I long to serve him. And so I long to be as obedient as I can to his ways and to his purpose. And then finally, the parties. You know, that's the fourth thing, the parties, the feasts. Punctuate your life With times of celebration and remembrance and thanksgiving. We haven't got time to look at the detail. You can find them all. You can study them all. Get off the rat race. Get off the wheel and rest and remember and rave. At least it begins with our Bob. You could not go for a few months without being forced to stop and to rest and to remember and to celebrate. What a great way to live. When was the last time you just had a rave for the sheer fact you were alive and God loves us that much? It strikes me I've got a lot to learn about the rhythm of life. Grace Notes in two minutes, maybe three. They're all the way through, aren't they? God's presence, mountain, blah, blah, blah. Who would ever imagined that God would dwell in his people as a human being? But that's the that heaven, mountain, human being. Amazing stuff. Priests. Let's just say something about the priest just for a moment. Can you imagine being a priest? Every day you're dealing with people's sin. How much fun is that? Every day you're helping exhausted people slaughter their animals. Every day you're pouring the blood of uh, of, of dead animals and sprinkling it on the altars. Every day you're clearing up. Every day you're stoking the fire that it might never go out. Every day you're gathering wood so that fire might be uh, uh, always ablaze. Every day under the heat of the sun you're working in this messy, terrible, in some ways, environment. How each day you must have longed to sit down, but you couldn't sit down, because as soon as one worshipper had finished, there was another one at the door, because just like today, everybody sins. And so they're queuing up day after day, and you as the priest are are doing it, hour after hour, day after. You think your job's monotonous. That was the life of the priest. How he would have longed to have taken a breath, there's another worshipper coming. And Jewish tradition has this, that the priests would start their work early in the morning and they would work right through to three o'clock in the afternoon. And then at three o'clock in the afternoon, after they'd cleared up and they were ready to go home and they'd wash their hands and they, 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 they were longing to get home and get out of all the gear and stuff, they would say to the people that were still there assembled, not now maybe at the tabernacle, but later in the temple where this got transferred to, they would come out and they'd say to the people, it's finished ring any bells? It's finished. The trouble was it wasn't finished because the next day they would get up before sunrise, get down to the temple as the sun rose up and they would do it all over again and again and again. What did the priests think? What What was growing inside them? There must be a better way than this. What if, and we believe in the power of the bulls, blood, and that what if there was a better way than this? The Bible says that at three o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus cried from the cross, I'm thirsty, and then he said, it is finished, it is finished powerful words. The, the tense is so rich. It's finished, it's been done once, and the consequences of it being finished will forever be made known. Its effect will always keep going. So these sacrifices that were done day after day after day, and their effect would wear off, because next week you would need to come with another bull, because you would sinned again. Jesus says, no, it's finished, quoting the words of the priest, and it will always be finished. And I love the beautiful way the Bible talks about this in Hebrews, day after day, Hebrews chapter 10, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take, see they knew, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, who's that? Jesus. When Jesus had offered for all time, one sacrifice for sins, he How many of you say, I can't sit down here I just need to do those jobs then I'll finished over done and there's this beautiful picture of Jesus sitting at the right hand of God because the work is done Hebrews 10 well the whole of Hebrews makes sense of Leviticus Hebrews 10 verse 1, the law is only a shadow of good things. They were always looking forward. How can, it says, the same sacrifices repeatedly year after year make perfect those who draw near. They they knew it was just a sign, just a symbol. It was pointing to something. And the more they did it, the more they understood, the more God sent the prophets, the more they could see that there is one who is coming.